Well now, I was just thinking of you fellow humans. Welcome once again to ASM Murder, the only true crime podcast with an ASMR twist. Today's episode is number 12 and we will be discussing a murderer named Jack. That's right fellow humans, we will be discussing Jack the Ripper. Wait, no, Stripper. Jack the Stripper. Sounds like the guy who sneaks into the gym after hours and quietly strips and refinishes the gym floor. With his floor stripper of justice, he takes criminals to the cleaner. Hmm, maybe not. Maybe Jack the Stripper is an undercover male exotic dancer. By day, a mild-mannered custodian, but at night it all comes off. Eh, probably not. No, today, fellow humans, we will be talking about the killer named Jack the Stripper. Yes, you heard right, it's not the culprit of many murders committed in London two centuries ago. In fact, these crimes happened in the mid-60s. Strange name, huh? Like I said, it sounds like an unlikely superhero, but worry not, it'll make sense in a bit. So, pack your bags, fellow humans, because we are taking a flight across the pond to jolly old England. Content warning. Today's episode contains graphic content not suitable for some audiences, which include mentions of physical and sexual abuse towards adults and children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of multiple crime scenes, and the state of multiple dead bodies. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Of course, Jack the Stripper's nickname is not a simple coincidence with the well-known Jack the Ripper. In fact, it's a reference to him. A nickname born as a way to actually call this mysterious murderer in some way apart from serial killer. These newer crimes also happened in London, which was also part of the reason for Jack the Stripper's nickname. All of the victims were prostitutes, naked and found all over the Hammersmith district. This occupation is the principal connection between all the victims, apart from the locations in which they were found. The official number of deaths is six, which took place between 1964 and 1965, although some investigators also link two previous deaths to this unknown murderer. Some people say that the killing started 40 years before the first corpses were ever found. His preferred method of killing was strangulation, and his crimes were committed with as much determination as the murderer from which his nickname came. He had been mostly forgotten by people because, well, his targets were people that maybe weren't very loved by the general public, missed only by their closest friends and family if they even had any at all. Plus, the victims were stripped of pretty much everything they had on them, sometimes including their fake teeth. But he's still known, just not very well, thanks to the level of violence and victims themselves. After all, people start noticing when naked dead bodies start appearing around England's capital city, near a well-known river, plus there had been a connection between the British government and one of the many victims. So, who were his victims and how were they found? We'll start with the first recorded death, a woman named Elizabeth Fig, found by the police at 5.10am the cold morning of June 17, 1959. She was found in a park called Duke's Meadow Chiswick on the River Thames, North Bank. This park was known as having been a place where partners met and where prostitutes brought their clients. Fig was only identified after a post-mortem image of her was shown in the news, recognized by her roommate and her mother. 
No matter how hard authorities searched around the crime scene, and even on the river itself, the missing things were never found. A police officer theorized that the culprit had been one of Fig's clients who had taken her things when he left in his own car after disposing the body. A pub owner said that on the night of the murder, his wife and him saw a car parking near the river five minutes past midnight, and that they heard a woman scream shortly thereafter. Now, let's take it to November 8th, 1963. Gwyneth Reese was found dead in a landfill near Town Mead Road in the Mortlake neighborhood. This place was 37 meters away from the Thames towpath and about 1.6 kilometers away from Duke's Meadows. She was completely naked except for a short sock and she had been decapitated by a shovel that the workers of the landfill used to level the trash. The third victim was Hannah Tailford. She was found dead on February 2, 1964, on the Thames Beach right under Linden House, very close to the London Corinthian Sailing Club and west to Hammersmith Bridge. She had been strangled and had many missing teeth. There was something strange with her, though. Her underwear was found, yes, but it was forcefully stuffed into her throat. What a classy fellow. About two months later, on April 8th of the same year, Irene Lockwood was found dead on the River Thames Bank, not too far from where Tailford had been found. She was pregnant when she died. It was thanks to this victim that police recognized the culprit was a serial killer and that these crimes were related. Not even a month had passed before another victim was found. On April 24th, in an alley on the back of Boston Manor Road in Brentford, Hella Bartholomew's corpse was discovered. With her, the first solid evidence for the case appeared. Paint stains used to make cars. Police theorized that the paint came from the culprit's workplace, so they started to investigate suspects in shops that worked on cars and repaired these. Basically mechanics, body shops, and so on. There's also Mary Fleming, whose body was found outside Barrymead Road, Chiswick, on July 14, 1964. Many neighbors had heard her car reversing near the crime scene right before the body was found, but this car was never found or heard of again. Now it's Frances Brown's turn. She was last seen alive on October 23, 1964, by a co-worker who had seen her getting inside of a client's car. Almost an entire month later, on November 25th, her body was found in a parking lot in Horton Street, Kensington. She had been strangled to death. Brown's co-worker had been able to provide an image and description of the stranger's car, thought to be a gray Ford Zephyr. Plus, another little detail. Brown had testified as a defense witness along Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davies in the trial of the Profumo affair in July of 1963. Maybe her crime had been the result of this. Who knows? And last but not least, we have Jack the Stripper's last known victim, Bridget Britty O'Hara. She was an Irish immigrant, found dead February 16, 1965, near a storage shed behind Heron Trading Estate in Acton. She had been missing since January 11th, so it had been a little over a month until she died and her body was found. John Rose of Scotland Yard was the detective in charge of the investigation, and he interviewed almost 7,000 possible suspects, working in the case as hard as physically possible to get answers. Spring, 1965. 
the investigation had great advances with new findings. Industrial paint samples were found, samples that matched perfectly with the paint on the victim's bodies. It was found under a hidden electronic transformer, pretty much nearby where the last corpse was found in Heron Trading Estates. The edifice that the machine was hidden in was right in front of the painting workshop, presumably where the samples originally came from. DuRose held a press conference shortly thereafter, in which he lied and said the suspect pool had been reduced to 20 men, that slowly was being reduced because of evidence proving their innocence. Soon this number halved until it became three public yet unnamed suspects. This probably scared Jack the Stripper because he didn't kill anybody else after the first press conference. The crime scenes all had stains of industrial paint everywhere, which were tracked back to the electric transformer. Plus, some of the bodies had signs of having been kept in warm temperatures, and the machine also had traces of having been the same warmth that the corpses had been. It was said that the victims participated in illegal parties and appeared in pornographic movies, and theorists say that the women knew each other and the murderer. Nothing else is certain about them, nothing that hasn't been mentioned before. There have been multiple suspects of these killings over the years, some of which weren't even considered possible culprits until about 10 years ago. First, we have Kenneth Archibald. He was a 57-year-old worker at Holland Park Lawn Tennis Club and confessed to the murder of Irene Lockwood on April 27, 1964. He was accused of manslaughter and judged in Old Bailey in June 1964. When he had to plead, he declared himself innocent and there was no other evidence linking him to the crime. He was declared innocent June 23rd of the same year. DuRose had another suspect in mind, an Irish security guard called Mungo Ireland, whose name honored his home country and who was identified by the detective for the first time in a TV interview from the BBC as a married and respectable man, going as far as to affectionately call him Big John. But this changed after O'Hara's murder, in which the traces of industrial painting were found on Heron Trading Estate, the place in which Mungo Ireland had worked in as the security guard in the past. He must have known the entire place by heart, which would have been beneficial if he had been the culprit. Shortly after this connection was made, Mungo committed suicide via carbon monoxide poisoning, leaving an apology note for his wife. A recent investigation revealed that Mungo had been in Scotland when the last crime happened, and his name had been cleared after so many years. So, yeah, suicide. Maybe he had other skeletons. Who knows? The beginning of this century brought many new things, one of them being a new suspect. It was 2001, and the reformed gangster Jimmy Tippett said that he had found information about the case while investigating for his book. It suggested that the boxer and world light heavyweight champion Freddie Mills was the real culprit. Tippett said that contrary to what one would expect, Mills was actually a sexual sadist who enjoyed inflicting pain on others. An independent London journalist had linked Mills to the murders back in 1972, having received information from a reliable source that said the boxer had killed the naked prostitutes. Mills' dead body was found in his own car in July 1965, and the cause seemed to have been suicide. It's still unclear if he was the culprit of the crime or not. There's more suspects and theories, though. David Seabrook, a writer, talked about an unidentified suspect back in 2006. He spoke about an ex-detective of London Metropolitan Police with an important rank, someone who was in charge of investigating the murders. 
a couple of journalists in the early 70s wrote the exact same thing, yet this detective was never identified. The last suspect was someone that TV talked about and wasn't even in the authority suspect list back in the 60s. TV channel Crime and Investigation Network discussed the case on their show called Fred Diniage Murder Casebook. A new theory about the culprit arose, and it was said that it could have been a convicted killer in Wales called Harold Jones, who had killed two little girls in 1921 in the Welsh city of Abertelly. His first victim had been Frieda Burnell, who was killed brutally and even raped. But all evidence against Jones was circumstantial, so he had to be released and was not charged of anything at all. However, shortly after he got his freedom, he lured young Flory Little to his home. He had been extremely physical and sexually violent with the little girl, and hid her body in the attic. This time it was obvious that the murders were premeditated, and he wasn't declared innocent this time. As he had been 15 years old back when he had committed the crime, he couldn't be sentenced with the death penalty and was instead sentenced to life imprisonment. If he had committed the crimes a couple of months later after his 16th birthday, he would have been hanged for sure. First, he was in Usk Jail, and then in London's Wandsworth Prison where he spent a lot of time before he tried to find a way to be freed. Jones was released 20 years after being incarcerated thanks to applying for parole and against the prison's psychiatrist's and governor's wishes, it was given to him because of good behavior. Jones changed his name and then disappeared from the radar at age 37. Jones settled in London in 1947, specifically living in Fulham. All murders had similar characteristics to his first crimes, as they had extreme physical violence signs, yet no signs of sexual abuse. Yet police never considered him a suspect, because many records were badly kept, barely checked by the authorities, so there was no real way of knowing the truth. Let's jump to a more recent year, to 2011, back when the tornado super outbreak of said year happened. Neil Millikins was a writer, published a book that talked about this case. He concluded that Jones was the real culprit of these crimes. He had tracked the suspected murderer's movement, saying that Jones had appeared in Fulham in the late 40s under the name of Harry Stevens, and stayed in Hestercombe Avenue until 1962. Then he disappeared once again and Millikins found out that Jones's whereabouts were unknown between 1962 and 1965, three years in which multiple prostitutes had been killed in the western part of London. In the end, nothing could be proven. Jones had died in 1971, almost 40 years before this theory was even told to the public. It is highly possible that this case will never be solved. After all, the culprit had been careful with picking their victims, hiding their identity, and clues that might lead to it for over 50 years. They might not even be alive nowadays, as their suspicion that the crime started long ago and they were marked as the act of a serial killer. Well, fellow humans, a wise man once said, when you come to the last page of the book, close the book. Why, grew you sexy hunk of baloney butter, I hear you say. We've scarcely begun, and now it's over. I am afraid so, fellow humans. We have come to the end of yet another episode, and it is here I must part ways with you. As usual, I just want to say that it was a privilege and a pleasure to have spent my time with you today. My day is made brighter because of it. That was episode 12 of ASM Murder. I drop new episodes each Monday, more or less faithfully. 
If you want to catch up on any episodes you missed or you just want to hear more of me in general, you can go to my website, murderpod.net. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-P-O-D.net. You can also find my podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I'll leave links in the description. If you enjoy what you hear, a positive review or a few stars here and there go a long way. I'd also love to hear your thoughts as I'm constantly trying to improve. I'm also working on getting these episodes on YouTube in case that's how you get your podcast fix. So until next time, please be kind to yourselves and be good to each other. Take care.